and and you know this is the nature of of of, of sport right you're the, the for everyone who who makes it there are a lot of other athletes who are putting in the hours and uh, and you know the chips don't fall quite in the right place and so having that goal to pursue was actually something that i think gave a huge amount of meaning to my life my name's andrew lee and welcome to the good life a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning, and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Alex Hutchinson is one of the world's best writers about the science of exercise. A former middle and long distance runner for the Canadian national team, he's no stranger to the rigours of hard exercise. But he's also a pretty accomplished scientist with a PhD from Cambridge University and a background working for the National Security Agency on quantum computing and nanomechanics. In recent years, Alex has worked for publications from New York Times to Runner's World uh, writing columns with had to have titles like Jockology or Sweat Science. His books include Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights, Fitness Myths, Training Truths and Other Surprising Discoveries from the Science of Exercise, and most recently his new book Endure, Mind, Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's, it's awesome to have a chance to chat. Uh, you've uh, you've spent a chunk of time in Australia as well. I, I should have said said in, said in the introduction. What took you down under? My uh, my wife studied medicine at uh, at Sydney Uni, so we spent four years in uh, in Sydney, and then uh, and then we spent about four months in Canberra before moving back to to Canada. So that was two thousand nine to two thousand thirteen. We were there, so we still have very very good friends there. And one of the, uh, the the great things I found about reading Endure was it had so much about my hometown there. I, I always think that uh, the pleasures of uh, running in the Canberra bush with the kangaroos are, uh, are something that only I will, uh, will will really really know about. So seeing the sprinkling of that and the Australian Institute of Sport Research uh, as a as a sort of uh, proud Australian, it's uh, Endure is great fun in that respect. Well, it, it is funny. I should jump in and say. Uh, and I hope I'm not going to ruffle any feathers here. Everyone warned us when we moved to Canberra that it, you know we we would miss being on the coast, and that Canberra just wasn't couldn't couldn't measure up to the great metropolises like Sydney. But we we truly loved Canberra. Uh, the the size and the the proximity to to green space and the kangaroos. Uh, it, it was it was the sort of most quintess even though it was just four months. It was the most quintessential Australian experience we had going out every morning and running with literally like a hundred kangaroos in Ainsley Park. It is fantastic, isn't it? And and I also learned that I was doing altitude training, which I'd never known before. Uh, you uh, you made the comment in, the, in Endure that at nineteen hundred meters, Canberra actually is having an impact on uh, on on the uh, on the difficulty of exercising. And uh, I think you blamed one of your half marathon performances in uh, in in Canberra upon the altitude. Yeah, and I should jump in and say it's, I think it's about f- four or five hundred meters, and so nineteen hundred feet. Um, oh, sorry. So, so it's actually yeah. very modest altitude. Most 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 people would poo-poo the notion that you'd have any 
problems there. And when I was trying to explain, like, I, why did I run so much slower than I expected in a half marathon in Canberra? Because I, you know, I have a pretty good sense. I'm an experienced runner. I have a pretty good sense of my fitness. And I was chatting to a scientist at the Australian Institute of Sport. And they said, oh, yeah, when they set up the labs here in the 90s, they were struggling with a similar mystery. They couldn't figure out why all the athletes were recording slightly lower VO2 maxes in Canberra than they did elsewhere. And so they actually ran a couple studies, which they ended up publishing, showing that, yes, indeed, it's it's subtle, but you do have a little bit of an effect even at the altitude of, of Canberra. So uh, did you start off running from the uh, from, from a young age? What first you got, got you into running? Yeah, I did. I, you know, I, I was a, I was one of those kids who who ran around a lot uh, just in the course of, of playing outside all the time. And of course, you know, I'm in my 40s now. So, you know, 30 plus years ago, I think everyone did to some extent. We, we, we all played around outside, but it was always something I enjoyed. Uh, and you know, once I got into elementary school, maybe when I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old, there was already an opportunity to join the local cross or the school cross country team. And I did that. And uh, so it's it's always kind of always been something that was there. And when I was a teenager, about 15, I started taking it more seriously and joined a local athletics club and things like that. So it's yeah, it's 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 been something that's been part of my life. Um, just kind of uh, organically, it, it kind of chose me that I, I, I always enjoyed running. And then you got involved in the national team while you were in, uh, in, in your college uh, years, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly would have liked to be involved in the national team uh, before that. Okay. Uh, but that's, that's when, uh, that's when I, I, it was actually just after I graduated uh, from my undergraduate degree. I, that summer, I, I squeaked onto my, my first national team uh, as, a, as a track and field runner, or as a 1,500-meter runner on the, on the track. So that was a real, a real highlight and a real career goal for me. Uh, what do you like about the 1500? Or what did, yeah, you, did well, you like about the 1500 <laughs> at that stage? I, I, I'm of course biased, but I think it's the, the sort of the king of events that it's, it's uh, you know, it, first of all, it doesn't take, uh, you know, I, I love marathons, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's an easily digestible four minutes. Uh, it's got speed and endurance. It's kind of, the 1500 is kind of the halfway point between sprinting and endurance running where you, you to run a good 1500, you have to have both those attributes. And then the races end up being real chess matches because you've got people who are trying to mm. watch each other and figure out who's going to use their speed first, who's got the better endurance. And so often the races are very, very unpredictable. They'll go slowly, then there'll be a fast move, then it'll slow down. And so it, it, there's the real cognitive element as well as just the raw physical element. You have to, you have to be a master tactician, which I, which I in fact was not, but you have to be a master tactician to, to do well in the 1500 meters. You're being modest, though. I mean, you, you, there was a period in your uh, your career where you your goal was to to make the make the Olympics, right? Was it the 2004 Olympics you're aiming towards? Yeah, I mean, I would have uh, 2000 would have been a good time, but I I was injured in uh, 98 and 99, um, and I had made the Canadian Olympic trials. I'd been a finalist in 1996. That was sort of just when I was breaking through. I was injured in 2000. And then in 2004, it was probably my best shot. And I got a, a stress fracture in my in my lower back about three months before the Olympic trials. So I was never really that close. But I, I was I was sort of in the conversation, uh, but but never put it together at the right time. And, and you know, this is the nature of of of, of sport, right? You're the, the for everyone who who makes it, there are a lot of other athletes who are putting in the hours and, uh, and you know, the chips don't fall quite in the right place. And so that, I, I really, 
having that goal to pursue was actually something that I think gave a huge amount of meaning to my life and, and that I, you know, so I, I don't look back and say, I can't believe I wasted all that time and didn't make the Olympics. I look back and say, man, that was a, that was an amazing opportunity to be uh, thinking about and dreaming about those sorts of things. How much of a better writer do you think it makes you about sport? Uh, I remember the Australian art critic Robert Hughes uh, who wrote American Visions uh, saying that uh, all art critics should try and do a bit of art and so they realise how damn hard it is. Uh, And even if you're not great at it, uh, you will be a far better art critic for having been an artist. Yeah, so I I think this is an interesting conversation. And I would say, um, you know... you don't necessarily have to have been an athlete to be a good writer about sport or, you know, you can have the same conversation about coaching, for example, do, 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 mm. are the, are the best coaches former athletes? And, and that doesn't always turn out to be the case. So the, the, there are different roads to that sort of understanding, but I know for me that it's, you know, I didn't initially set out to be a journalist writing about sport. And what happened to me is, is early in my journalistic career, I was working for a newspaper as a general assignment reporter. So doing all, writing about all sorts of things. And I had an opportunity to write a profile about a, a Kenyan marathoner who was coming to to defend his title at the at the Ottawa Marathon, which is the city I was where I was working. And mm. I, you know, I got to spend a few days with him, and I and I wrote this piece that turned out to be, you know, by far the best thing I had written as as a journalist. And and everyone said to me, "Wow, you you bring such so much more, you know, depth and context and understanding and confidence and voice to to this piece." And it, you know, it's clearly because you know this topic and you love this topic and that kind of stuck with me this that writing about running for, or, or about endurance or about sport or even about science in, a, in another sphere writing about things that I know and care about it's not just a sort of uh, self-indulgence it's also a way of tapping into you know a lifetime of experience and context and so I think uh, it, it's hard. I, I, as I contemplate writing about other things, it's it's hard to bring that same level of not just of knowledge but of passion and background to a topic. If you just sort of if I if I wake up tomorrow and decide I want to write about ballet, it's not just my lack of ballet experience that would be a problem. It's it's also just that I I wouldn't bring the same the same level of passion and knowledge. Yes. Yes. Uh, and one of the things you do, I think, brilliantly is to uh, to merge the science uh, with the, with that uh, that that passion for, uh, for for sport. So let's go through some of the sort of questions that many people have about uh, about exercise. Um, people do die exercising. Uh, is it dangerous to exercise? People do die exercising, but I would say uh, orders of magnitude more people die from not exercising. So, uh, <laughs> you know, n- nothing, nothing is zero risk. And, and it's one of those things where it's in the acute, if, if you think about, let's say you run a marathon uh, and you're going to get your heart beating pretty hard. And in the same way that here in Canada, we always have cases of people, you know, whenever there's a big snowfall, there'll be a few people who get a heart attack shoveling the snow the next day. Um, Mm. and, and stressing your heart makes it more likely that if there's, if there's something that's ready to go wrong with your heart, that's when it's going to go wrong. But the the best way to reduce your risk overall, so you can say, well, if I don't want to die, I'm going to not choose to not run that marathon and I'm going to choose not to shovel that snow. And that may lower your risk for today, but it's, it's gradually adding to your risk for subsequent days and months and years. And overall, you're better to be getting out there and shoveling snow every day or getting out there and exercising every day. Because then the act of shoveling snow or of running a marathon is no longer quite such a stress on your heart. And in fact, you you end up with a dramatically lower risk overall. So, I mean, to answer the question in the bigger picture, uh, there are risks associated 
with exercise. Um, but for the most part, those risks are tiny and there are definitely risks associated with not exercising. <laughs> so mm. so you, you can't consider the question in a vacuum. You have to understand that every action has risks and actually exercising in most contexts for most people is is the best way to minimize their risk of, of, of bad health outcomes. And I think you say that for every million hours of aerobic exercise, there are on average two deaths, uh, which suggests that uh, exercise is, is pretty safe in the scheme of things. Absolutely. The, the, the big takeaway message. So it's like the, the important message is now exercise is safe. Then but people want to say, but what about that guy who died? Well, you say, OK, look, it, it you know, things happen. But what about that guy who died while he was playing chess? You know, that that happens, too. And what about if you are sick, if you've got a cold? Should you uh, should you uh, go to the gym or do your uh, do your regular run or take a day off? Yeah. You know, this is this is a, a longstanding point of controversy, because, of course, lots of people who exercise are more or less addicted to their their daily workout. So they don't want to hear anything that suggests they should take the day off. There's a kind of there's a there's a rule of thumb which has been uh, has been tested in some interesting studies called basically called the 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 neck uh, above or below the neck check and de depending on where your symptoms are. You know, if you've just got a a little head cold, uh, you, you're, you know, you've got the sniffles, you, you can go out and exercise and there's unlikely to be any negative effects. But if you've got symptoms, if you've got, if you're, ha you know, coughing up a lung uh, or, or if you're feeling feverish uh, and things like that, then there's probably an advantage to, in terms of, you know, ra hastening your recovery of not pushing yourself too hard. But it, it, it's one of those things where it's a, it's a delicate balance because, um, a little bit of some mild stress, like physical stress, can help ramp up your immune system, and heavy stress can help s suppress it. So there, there's often, right. if you're not feeling too bad, going out for a walk or something is good. Going out and running your hardest workout is is, is bad. So the, the, there's no ironclad rules, but uh, in general, uh, you know, I, my my cert, certainly my approach and my you know what I suggest to people is don't stress about missing a couple of days workouts get out get some fresh air but don't don't try and uh, don't try and push yourself because you're just going to risk uh, having a longer setback uh, but then when you're on days when you're feeling good uh, one of the messages seems to be that you ought to train hard and push push to push to failure uh, this uh, this this interesting literature on high intensity resist resistance training really seems to have changed the way in which many people think about their exercise regime yeah and i think so i think one thing that's important is to understand that pushing to failure in whatever context is is a super powerful way of boosting your fitness and a time efficient way of getting a good workout. It's not necessarily what you want to do every day. And if you look at what the best athletes in the world do, they tend to follow a sort of 80-20 rule um, that's mm. kind of evol evolved through practice, which is, you know, about 80% of their workouts are at a relatively low intensity. You know, if, if you're talking about running, it's, it's conversational pace um, and, and not too stressful, building up some volume. And about 20% of their workouts are really, really hard. So that might translate into, you know, a couple times, two or three times a week tops. They're, they're going out there and, and, you know, pushing themselves to their limits. And that seems to be a more effective way of doing it than just going out there and, and you know, hitting seven out of 10 every day. So you want to kind of polarize it. Some of your workouts are nine out of 10 and some of them are five out of 10 and quite pleasant. And so mentally, that's a little easier to tolerate. But physically, it also seems to, to you know, 
do do more for your body and that that applies to cardio training it also applies to to, to resistance training um, mm. that there, there's there's some interesting evidence that you know people people get all wound up about you know exactly how much weight they should be lifting and how many reps and how many sets and what the literature suggests these days is that it doesn't really matter as long as you lift to the point where you you could maybe at most do one more rep. You're, you're within a rep of failure. And if you lift to that point, your muscles get the signal that they need to get stronger, whether you're doing you know, 12 reps with a relatively lightweight or five reps with a heavier weight or 20 reps. As long as, as, long as you reach the point where you can't go any farther or can't go much farther, you're going to get a, a, a good muscle-building boost. Uh, what about uh, literature? Oh, sorry, I was going to ask you. You you also uh, you still train pretty hard, right? I mean, you're uh, you, you're you're not at the level of making Olympic trials. But uh, uh, my sense from uh, from from certainly what you've uh, what you've read and what I've heard about you is that uh, you're somebody who enjoys an intense workout. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I mean, I, in the grand scheme of things, yeah, I, I actually train very hard relative to what I used to do ten years ago. It, it, it's 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 less. But what I've what I've found is, I, so I do a lot less mileage. I, I, I might run 50K a week these days compared to, you know, 120. Um, but I still do at least two hard sessions a week. I'll do a tempo run and an interval session, sometimes two interval sessions. Um, and for me, that's that's partly because I think that's a really, you know, I have a, a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home right now, and my wife has a pretty demanding career. So I, I have a lot of time kind of looking after kids. And so finding time to go out for 90 minutes is is, is pretty pretty challenging for me these days. Just you know, temporarily. And so I like the time efficiency of going out there and hammering a hard workout. But I also like the feeling I there's just, I, you know, as, as much as I like a conversational long run with friends, I also really love the feeling of, of going to the well and doing a hard interval workout, and, you know, finishing just feeling kind of punch drunk. And then for the rest of the day, I have a sort of uh, a, a, a positive feeling and a feeling that I've already done something pretty hard today and nothing, nothing else I do today will be as hard as what I did, you know, this morning uh, out on the trails with my friends. Right, right. If, uh, as, as the saying goes, if you uh, eat a live frog every morning, then nothing else will ever be the worst <laughs> thing that happens to you in the day. Um, training, training in a group or uh, training individually? What does the uh, science tell us on this? You know, the, 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 I don't think there's a, a right or wrong way there either. Um, uh, there's definitely some very interesting science to say that um, you can get some physical benefits from the presence of other people. There's a, a, just an absolutely fascinating res- uh, study done a, a number of years ago with the Oxford rowing team where they tested their pain tolerance before and after workouts. And it's well known that doing a workout does enhance your pain tolerance um, you know, through the production of brain chemicals like endorphins. Uh, but what they they had the, the rowers do it identical workout twice, and once they did it on a you know a, a rowing machine all alone in a room, and once they did it on a rowing machine lined up next to their teammates on who were also on rowing machines, mm. uh, same workout but just with the presence of their teammates and their their pain tolerance increased far more when they had their teammates with them. So there there is real certainly for performance, but also just for f- feeling good. Uh, and there's uh, there's advantages to do to tra- working out with with other people, and there, you know there's psychological and social reasons too that it's great to work out with other people, but I, I don't think that means that working out on your own isn't also you know it also has wonderful benefits. And so I try I try and mix them. I do a lot of my runs by myself, but I, I make a real effort a couple times a week to get together, particularly for my hard workouts where I want to be pushing myself and be pushed by others. I'll, I'll I'll go out of my way and you know commute a bit if I have to to to, to meet up with friends to to get some company, get some social time, and and get some of that uh, that uh, brain chemical boost from from having training partners. 
Yes. And I, I, I thought it was a lovely line from uh, the uh, surprise winner of the Boston Marathon, uh, Yuki Karauchi, who was asked why he's running at the moment, something like 20 marathons a year. And his response was, well, I, I train on my own, so my only real chance of getting to see other people is by doing the, doing the races. <laughs> <laughs> Although he didn't see very many people out in Boston because he was too far ahead. But uh, I guess he got to chat to some people uh, before and after. And, and the fact that the weather was such that you couldn't see two feet in front of your face. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, barefoot running? Ah, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a good thing this isn't like 2012 or, or we might have to have a fist fight about barefoot running because that seemed to be what, <laughs> uh, what everyone was doing at the time. Um, yeah, I think tempers have kind of cooled a little bit. I, I think barefoot, the, the whole, the whole sort of surge of interest in barefoot and minimalist running was, uh, I think a pretty useful corrective to, a. Uh, a shoe industry that had gone too far to the to the approach of thinking we should build these highly highly engineered heavy clunky you know super shoes which weren't necessarily doing what they were supposed to for everybody and as it turned out going barefoot didn't was also not the the cure all that that people hoped that that a lot of the reasons people get injured this is sort of a bigger bigger question or a bit of bigger topic but a lot of the re- reasons people get injured is that they get impatient that they, they've they're you know they've recently started running and mm. they want to go from zero kilometers a week to running a half marathon in six months or experienced runners are, are pushing their, their limits a little bit to try and uh get a pb and 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 those training errors are are, are the, the the real key factor and so you can say that theoretically, you know, our our ancestors twenty thousand years ago were were born to to run barefoot. But the fact is, and and you can say that everyone can learn to run barefoot. But if you've been running in shoes all your life or walking in shoes, you need to you know t- take this very very careful and gradual approach to transitioning to barefoot. And and the fact is, people don't do that in the same. If if people were that patient that they could follow that advice, they wouldn't have been getting injured in the first place because they could have adapted to <laughs> other running shoes too. So the the practical reality has been that barefoot isn't a, a, a cure all. But I think it has had for some people it's been wonderful and that's great. But the other thing is it's 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 had a definite effect on the whole running shoe industry. There are just a whole mm. bunch more options. Not all, not necessarily all, all the way to barefoot, but but at, at varying sizes and varying types, and saying maybe some people like a heel drop that's a little lower, some people like a lighter shoe. And the truth is, I, I run in I I run in on an, in any given week, I probably run in three different shoes of different sizes and, and types. I'm a big believer in variety, so that I'm not. Uh, you know, uh, forcing my feet to do the same thing every day. But some of those shoes are definitely lighter. Two of of those three pairs of shoes are lighter than the shoes I would have been running in 10 years ago. And and I think that's been good for me. And it's been good for a lot of people to have more options and not necessarily just to gravitate immediately to to sort of super restrictive big shoes. Yeah, I know Dick Telford's running book talks about the uh, better performance of people who run in uh, a variety of different kinds of shoes. But I always wondered to what extent that was causation, to what extent it was correlation. I mean, when I think about the people who run in a variety of different shoes, they're they're people who are doing speed sessions more often, for example. So uh, it'd be interesting to see what the science is around uh, varying your shoes from day to day. Yeah, there's. I mean, you're absolutely right that him, who's going to spend hundreds of dollars on you know multiple pairs of running shoes? Uh, it's the people <laughs> who are already already pretty serious about it. There was a study out of Be- uh, Belgium, or no, out of Luxembourg, I guess it was, uh, uh, maybe a, a year or two ago, that was a prospective study where they looked at people's uh, shoe habits and then their injury risk, and the people who were varying shoes more had 
uh, fewer injuries. But as you say, like it's, I think these effects are pretty subtle. And, and for me, it's also just a question of, of kind of horses for courses that I, I uh, you know, s- s- some longer runs, I like to have a little more cushioning. If I'm doing a speed speed work, I like to have a lighter shoe. And so it's, it yeah. makes sense to me in that sense to have different different shoes on the go. And uh, lastly, on your fir- first book, uh, which comes first, cardio or weights? <laughs> so th- there's, there's a long backstory here, which is that I, I originally wanted to call that book, my first book, I wanted to call it Sweat Science, which was the name of my, my column. And, and an editor at my publisher suggested changing it to which comes first, cardio or weights, because it was an example of one of the questions that I tackled in the book, whether you should whether you should do you know your cardio or your weights first during a workout. And there was some evidence that I wrote about then that your body kind of has a, a molecular switch um, that either you're adapting to increase your endurance or you're adapting to build your, your, your muscles and your strength. And you can't necessarily do both simultaneously, at least not optimally. And you can't switch instantly between the two. So whatever workout you start with is kind of going to kind of set the tone for what your body is, is trying to adapt to. And so the conclusion I came to then was that uh, you know, whichever one is more important to you, that's the one you should do first. If you're trying to get bigger, you should you should do that first. And I think that's still a pretty good conclusion. But there's this area of research has actually been really active since that book came out, and hmm. the, the picture has gotten a lot muddier. It's 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 a very inconvenient when science does that. When you think you have a nice simple picture, <laughs> and then you know they do more research into the topic, and they're like, ah, just wait a second. It's actually there's other factors. And so the 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 one thing that I would add that has come out in in the in the years since then is what they found is these molecular switches that, that de- determine whether you're you know, adapting optimally to a given workout, they seem to be very sensitive to caloric status. To, to, so if you, one of the real reasons that if you go do a, a, you know, if you go running for an hour and then go to the weight room, that uh, you won't get as much bang for your buck in the weight room. It's not just that they're because of the magic, you know, metabolic switch. It's also because you're in a state of caloric depletion, and so uh, and your body is focused more on on conserving energy rather than adapting to your workout. So w- right. the one practical piece of advice is if you're doing both types of workouts on the same day. That's a that's a time when it's actually pretty important to let's say when you finish one part of your workout to to take in some calories to have a banana or a, you know a tuna sandwich or whatever the case may be uh, to to make sure you're you're fueling for that workout. This is if you're trying to lose weight, then this is maybe not such a big focus. But if you're trying to build muscle and build aerobic fitness and you're training quite hard, then then the timing of when you take in some calories for a double workout like that dictates may, or may help influence whether you're able to get bang for your buck in both parts of your workout yes yes so the uh, the new book's uh, called endure a, a, a significantly shorter uh, sh- shorter title than your uh, your 19 <laughs> word title for the, uh, the, the, the the first book uh, mind body and the curiously elastic limits of human performance um, what prompted it yeah th- this is really the so endure is 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 kind of the passion project that which comes first cardio or weights w- was a very practical kind of training book. And I was interested in that, but it was also driven a little bit by the fact that I thought that was what people would want to, you know, everyone wants practical advice, right? We all want to know what mm, we should mm. do. But what really sort of drove me into this, into the area of the science of fitness and the science of, of endurance was was less, it wasn't so much thinking that I would find a, you know, a miracle way of getting faster or anything. It was more curiosity. I, I was really curious about how the how the body works, how, and, and, you know, when you reach, 
for anyone who's run or anyone who's been in any situation where they're pushed to their limits, and I think most of us can think of situations in our lives, whether whether it's in sports or in other aspects of life, where we've reached the point where you just feel like you can't go any farther, or you can't go any faster, or you can't continue any longer. Um, and those limits often feel very physical. But, you know, in the course of my own running, and then in the course of starting to read up in, on the research in this area, I, I, I came away with the idea that or with the impression that that limits that feel physical are often not that they're they're kind of illusions. We we get the sense we've hit our limits, but but something sometimes circumstances show us that we actually had more in the tank than we thought. And so, that was this question I started out with probably about a decade ago is to try and understand what what are our limits and 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 how do we know when we've really reached our limits? And you'd had an experience in the fifteen hundred that suggested that uh, these these limits might be a little more elastic than you'd imagined, right? Yeah, that, that's that, when I sort of, you know, psychoanalyzed myself at the, at the, as I got down to writing this book and thought, you know, why am I so interested in this? Because I had to, you know, to tr- I had to try and convince myself that this was something others would be interested in. And I thought, well, why am I so interested in it? And and what, what I sort of ended up concluding is that it all went back to a race I had when I was about 20 years old, because I'd, I'd been, my dream had been to break four minutes for the 1500. And I had run 402 or so when I was 16. And uh, so I thought it was just a matter of time. But for about four years, I, I, I really hit a plateau where I, I, I was, I, by the time I was 20, my best was only 401. So I'd spent four years running within a second or two of the same time. And so I really had the sense that for me, this was a physical limit, that I was approaching mm-hmm. as fast as my body was capable of running. And I'd given it my best shot. And if I got a good day and a good tailwind, I would run 359. But that was about as much as I could hope for. And and what happened is in a in a sort of a pretty meaningless uh, early season race uh, w- w- when I was uh, yeah when I was twenty uh, I went out there and did you know did my thing and, and got out to a, a good start and after the first lap the the timekeeper called out a split that was just ridiculously fast like you know to the point where half of my brain was saying oh my god Alex you have totally messed this up you are going to suffer and pay for this you've gone out way too fast and the other half of my brain was thinking oh wait hey you feel pretty good this is this is Mm. surprising and and that same thing happened in the second lap he called out a time and I thought oh way too fast but I feel good. So at, the, at, 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 at that point, I just started, I put my head down and, and, and this was an indoor race. So there were uh, seven and a half laps. I just put my head down and, and started running, saying to myself, like, don't waste this moment, Alex, this could be your day. And I ended up running 352, which was a nine second personal best after four years of stagnation. And, and what happened afterwards, the, the, the sort of postscript is, I, you know, I checked in with my teammates who had timed the race for me and was sort of debriefing with them. And, and when they gave me the splits, it turned out that my splits had actually been totally reasonable and the timekeeper had been off by about three seconds for whether he started his watch late or whether, you know, he was having a translation problem because this was in a French part of Canada. I, I, I don't know what was going on, but he, he tricked me into having absolutely the best race of my life. And then the, yes. the, the postscript was that uh, once that switch was flipped, it never flipped back. I never had trouble breaking four minutes again. And in fact, in my next race, I ran 349. And in my race after that, I ran 3.44. So all of a sudden, I was 17 seconds faster than I'd been stuck at for, for four years. And so from that point on, I could never really take seriously the idea that when I crossed the line that, oh, that was it. That's all my body was capable of because I'd had this really graphic demonstration of the fact that sometimes what had felt like my limit was actually could be changed you know, in, at, with, with the snap of your fingers by, by some sort of circumstance that only affected my brain and not my body. 
And it's striking to me, uh, you have so much evidence in your, uh, in your book about how easy we are to fool. Uh, this, uh, this notion that if you tell runners they look relaxed, then they end up running more efficiently. Uh, if you give uh, athlete, tell athletes to uh, just uh, use phrases like feeling good and push through the pain, then they perform more quickly. This stuff seems almost trivially simple. Uh, yeah, and this is something I really struggled with because, you know, and one of the things I mentioned in the book is that a lot of the conclusions I come to, like th- about, th- for instance, about the, the importance of the, your internal monologue, these are things that sports psychologists have been saying for a long time. And in fact, when I was in university 20 years ago, this is what this is what the sports psychologists were telling us. But we we dismissed it. I, you know, and I'm I'm a very skeptical kind of empirical guy. I want to see evidence to, to before I put my faith in something. I want to know that it works, and. Uh, so in a sense, this whole process of writing the book was, was a journey of convincing myself of some things that I would, you know, five years ago, I never with a straight face would have told someone that, you know, the words you tell yourself in your head make a difference. But now I've been to the labs, I've talked to the scientists, and I've seen people testing these ideas, you know, having cyclists come and do time trial tests, and then having half of them be instructed in how to change their internal monologue so that it, instead of saying this, you know, this hurts too much, I can't do it, they're saying to themselves, come on, you can, you, you can do it. And seeing that, yeah, that makes them, that allows them to perform better in the endurance test. It allows them to push harder. It allows them to push to a point where their core temperatures were a little higher. So they're actually physiologically pushing harder, but their, their mm. sense of effort stays the same. So they've managed to change the, the relationship between effort and physical output so yeah i mean so to, to circle back to your question it's it's like i find this stuff so simple that i would never would have believed it if i hadn't gone through the process of following the scientific research and, and getting some understanding of how scientists think this actually works that it's not just sort of woo woo uh you know it's, it's all in your head that there's some science that that comes back to the importance of uh your of perception of effort that how hard an effort feels really is the most important thing rather than what your lactate levels are or what your heart rate is. You profile a lot of extraordinary athletes in Endure. Do you have a, a favorite one? <laughs> yeah, there, there are a few. Uh, I would say, that, you know, the, the one that, the, so I'm a runner, so I have a soft spot for some of the, the, the running stories in there. Like there's an ultra marathoner named Diane Van Deren who, who was not a runner at all until she had brain surgery when she was 37. She had pretty serious epilepsy, had a part of her brain removed where the seizures were originating, and there was some collateral damage. And so she had an impaired sense of, you know, or an impaired ability to keep track of time and distance. And from nothing, she, you know, virtually overnight became this champion ultra marathoner, just ridiculous feats, running, you know, three week races, running 22 hours a day setting records in her into her 50s and the, the 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 secret seemed to be that she could kind of you know it's it's this like this epitome of mindfulness she could she could only run in the moment she couldn't be burdened by how far she had come how far she still had to go all these sorts of things to her it was always just a question of what can my body do right now and as a result it, you know she was able to push herself into you know tremendous pain uh but but she was able to perform amazing feats because she wasn't constantly burdened by you know the 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 message or the the bur- the, the pain of the pa- that she of the running she'd already done or the fear of what she still had to do 
You talk about uh, some mornings in which she, uh, her feet were so sore that she couldn't put weight on them, so she had to begin the day crawling before the endorphins kicked in and she was finally able to get to her feet. Yeah, and and that, I think that I, level of commitment is just crazy. It, 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 is, it is wild. And I think, you know, that's an important detail because sometimes, you know, people have written a number of articles about Diane Van Deren, and sometimes the impression that, that you're left with is that, oh, sh- she had damage to her brain, so she can't feel pain. So she's, you know, it, running is just easy to her and it doesn't hurt. And it's it's important to, to point out, no, she is in absolute agony when she she can't even walk. She's crawling until her feet are, you know, are numb enough from the endorphins that she can get up and start running. But she's able to do that because she's, she's not thinking I have to go 20, 22 hours today. She's thinking I have to take the next step and then the step after that and then the step after that. Do top athletes in general feel pain less than the rest of us? Oh, that's a great, a, a, a really fascinating topic, because the the what the research tends to show, and there's quite a bit of it now, is that they feel the, the good athletes feel pain the same as everybody else. They have ex- so if you if you were to say, uh, line up a bunch of people and start giving them electric shocks in the sort of ascending strength, getting stronger and stronger. The athletes and the non-athletes would likely be right around the same point where they would say, okay, yeah, that that hurts now. But if you keep turning up the shocks, the athletes would be willing to endure f- the pain for far longer and to far higher levels. So they, they have the same pain sensitivity as everyone else. They feel pain the same, but they have a greater pain tolerance. They're willing to endure it. And so the it, there's still ongoing research on this, but the, the sort of dominant uh, theory on this is that it's, this is really a, psych- a psychological difference, that, that athletes learn to cope with discomfort uh, because they, you know, and they learn coping skills through their repeated exposure in training. And so they learn, uh, for example, they learn to distract themselves and they learn to reframe the pain in a way that removes its emotional content. So that instead of thinking, oh my God, this hurts, I'm going to die. I want to, you know, rip my arm off. They think, I, I, I feel pain. It means that I can't continue at this pace indefinitely. Uh, but it's just information. It helps me to pace myself. So they're, they're, they're treating discomfort as information. And what's, what's really fascinating is that then this translates into their ability to tolerate discomfort in other facets of life. So they have greater pain tolerance, uh, you know, again, for electric shocks or heat or cold or, or pressure and things like that. So I think that's, to me, that's a really powerful sort of illustration of if you, if you go out and train every day and, and make yourself a little bit uncomfortable, you're not just training your body, you're training your mind to be able to handle uncomfortable situations in, in, in any aspect of your life. And you, uh, you talk too in the book about uh, the importance of teaching athletes to do more than they think they can, you know, in some sense, to, in the way in which you learned you could, uh, you could run a 1500 far quicker than four minutes. Uh, you talk about this particularly cruel trick of uh, uh, the extra unexpected repetition. Uh, tell us about that one. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is something that that's, it's kind of has legendary status uh, in, in running circles. A lot of people have, have endured it in one form or another. And the, the form that I first heard about it was from a guy named Ambie Burfoot, who's a, a journalistic mentor of mine. He's, he was an editor at Runner's World uh, and and uh, a former Boston Marathon champion in 1968. And at one point, he, he wrote something saying, uh, the absolute single best running workout you could do, the most powerful workout that would increase your performance the most was to do five times a mile as hard as you can. And then when you finish that five times the fifth mile rep and you're lying on the ground gasping feeling like you're about to die your coach comes over to you and says okay do one more 
And you say, that's impossible. <laughs> I, you, you told me to do them as hard as I can. I did. I, and, and the coach says, I know, just do one more anyway at the same pace. And you get up and you go and do it. And you discover that, you know, surprise, surprise, you can do it. And you, and so, and, and Ambie's point was, from this, you learn the most important lesson in running, which is that you can do more than you're capable of. And so this, I heard this from Ambi, and then what was interesting to me is hearing the echoes of it in other places. So I went to South Africa to talk to Tim Noakes, the, the, the famous exercise physiologist, and I asked him, when did you start thinking about the role of the brain? And he started as, as a rower rather than a runner. And he said in the early 1970s, when he was running for the South African universities, or rowing for the South African universities team, that's what their coach did to them once. They did, I think it was 500 meter reps. And when they were finished, the coach, you know, they're at this really hard workout. The coach said, go back and do four more. And they did four more at the same pace. And it was the same lesson. And so we don't, we're not all lucky enough to have coaches who can, uh, you know, play these sorts of tricks on us. And even if we are, you can't do that every week, right? Like you can't, you don't fall for it every time. At a certain point, you get suspicious. It's sort of a, a once, you know, once a year or once a career lesson. Mm. But there, But there are other ways I think that you can, like I had that very lucky moment with the with the mistimed uh, timer, but uh, but but the the underlying thing is creating that belief or creating that understanding that, as you said, you can do more than you think you can, and there, and and sometimes a little trick is the best way to to uh, to teach yourself that lesson. And uh, you talk in the book too about uh, these uh, these barriers, uh, you know, climbing Everest without oxygen, which was one thought once thought impossible. The four minute mile, which uh, uh, Landy and ba- Bannister sort of questioned whether it uh, it could, could be broken, uh, and the one you've been closest to is uh, the attempt to break uh, two hours for the marathon to uh, to run at a pace of twenty one kilometres an hour for uh, for two hours. Uh, you uh, you you were there when uh, Eliud Kipchoge recently. Uh, last last year came within 25 seconds of uh, of, of that goal. Uh, when do you think we will see a two-hour marathon in controlled conditions and in a race? Uh, that's this is uh, yeah. I I, I I had to make a prediction uh, back in 2014. I did a big 10-page feature for Runners World on the physiology of what it would take to run a two-hour marathon, and I concluded that piece by saying that I thought it would happen in 2075. And so, and then, you know, sure enough, a couple of years later, Elliot Kipchoge runs two flat 25. So I'm, uh, I, I once burned twice shy. I'm, so I don't want to, I, I don't want to make myself look silly again, but I think Kipchoge's performance changed the timeline. I, I, it showed that mm. it's close, that under controlled conditions is closer than, than, than we thought. The, the real question mark is, is, uh, you know, how special is Elliot Kipchoge? We know he's really, 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 really special. But is he a once-in-a-generation talent? Is, the, is, did, is what he did something that only he can do, and, and we're going to have to wait another 20 years for someone like him, especially as he gets a little older and his, 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 uh, you know, the number of opportunities he has available uh, dwindles? But what I would say is I think under controlled conditions, I mean, it's clear that if things had gone slightly differently, it could be done tomorrow with the right runner in the right circumstances. You know, like 25 seconds is nothing. So it, it could happen any time if you control enough conditions. In, in conditions that are sort of world record eligible, uh, whether or not it's a genuine race or whether it's a setup, but at least that are eligible for the world record, I think we're probably still a, 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 you know, a couple of decades away. But I think the X factor is if someone runs, once start, someone is running you know, 201 or something, 
in record legal conditions, you're going to see tremendous interest and tremendous you know pots of money showing up to 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 set up races that are like the Nike Breaking Two race, but are record legal. And once the, once they right. do that, I think we could we could get dragged under you know relatively quickly. There'll, there'll just be such momentum. So I, I you know my final answer is uh, a couple of two to three decades from now. But I, I, I'm fully prepared to be proven wrong, you know, tomorrow. Yeah, it's interesting to me to see how many uh, runs there have been in the last couple of years that are within 20 seconds of Dennis Cometo's uh, 202.57 world record. Uh, there's just there's, a, there's an astonishing number of low 203 uh, marathons suggesting that, you know, if they're all clustering around that point, it is actually quite a ways before they, uh, they knock that final three minutes off. Yeah, I mean the 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 glass half full way of looking at that at that is that there there are it's not just one person who's who's in that sort of ballpark and that that there may be some young guns who are capable of running 203 in Berlin this year which means that if you put them in some, you know if 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 they get a little quicker and if you put them in perfect conditions cuz Berlin is you know it has you know two dozen turns that are that are right angle or steeper or something something in that uh vicinity and uh, so there, there are things you can do to make it faster without making it cheating and so uh, you know if there's enough people running 203 then you got to think there's someone who will just hit one out of the park uh before too long and run 202 or, or maybe even better yeah yeah alex let me let me ask you a few final questions so what advice would you give to your teenage self yeah, the, <laughs> uh, stay in school, Alex. Now, um, probably the if, you did. You athlete, stayed in school for a long time. You had a PhD. I, 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 How much longer did, do you I, want to stay in school? I was gonna, maybe the advice would be the opposite. Like, Alex, get out of school. <laughs> Go, experience real life. Um, now, you know, from in the context of the things we've been talking about, um, that you know, the number one thing I, I would tell myself if I had a time machine was is is to. Uh, you know, take seriously the role of the mind, and and in a very specific way, I would say. Mm. Try motivational self-talk, and by you know, but, right. but there's a very formal like this is a this is a thing. It's not just a concept. There's you know, you, you first you identify you, you identify what you say to yourself in in the context of you know stressful situations. You come up with alternatives. You practice them until they're second nature. And it's uh, as wishy as 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 much as my teenage self would turn up my nose and say, "Come on, are you, are you joking?" I would I would insist and say, "Listen, young man, th- th- there's good science here, and this is something that's worth trying." What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, I <laughs> there's a lot of things I used to believe athletically, like that I if I didn't stretch twice a day, my you know my my legs would fall off and and uh, I would be unable to run. <laughs> and uh, you know, t- ten years ago, it just I, I when I stopped my sort of super competitive track. Uh, life, I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to do the things I enjoy and I'm going to see if, and I'm not going to do the things I don't enjoy and I'm going to see if I actually do fall apart. And so I stopped stretching about 10 years ago and I, 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 I'm unable to tell the difference except that I'm even farther from being able to touch my toes now. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of that sort of uh, things that I was firmly, that I never questioned for, for 10 years of stretching twice a day uh, that I'm now, uh, you know, I, I no longer am convinced that, it, that it's necessary for most people. Oh, my, my physio tells me it's uh, the best form of injury preven- prevention, but uh, you don't think the science backs that up? 
it's tricky because uh, the you know it's hard to study these things. You, you do a, a, a study where every, it's like giving 10,000 people identical eyeglasses and then seeing whether their vision improves on average. Well, it may right. not, but that doesn't mean that the people who got the right eyeglasses for their problem don't see better. And so I think stretching is, is similar. I think we were all told that we should all be doing a generic stretching program and, and people tr- and, and so we were all doing all the same stretches in the same way. Uh, regardless of what our actual needs were. And that I, I don't think there's really much evidence that that helps. I do think it's it's pretty clear that um, everyone has specific t- areas of tightness and imbalance and, and weakness, and addressing those with some stretching and strengthening uh, can be really, really important. I, so I think that's, but I think, uh, you, you know, so if you've got a physio suggesting, you know, focus on these four stretches, there's a really good chance right, that that's going right. to be doing something useful for you. If you're opening up, yeah, hey, look, I, and I spent you know many years writing for running magazines, but if you're opening up Runner's World and saying, here's the seven stretches every runner should do, well, you may not be every runner in that in that context. And, and there's certainly not a lot of evidence that backs up that, that, uh, that sort of approach. Right, right. So just keep dropping one off until something gets injured and then put it back on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, admittedly, yes, that, that it does sort of sound like uh, closing the barn door after the horse bolted. But uh, oh, no. so. That's, uh, yeah, everything's got uh, costs and benefits. Well, when are you most happy? Ah, uh, you know what? I, I, <laughs> after running. I, I love running, but I love after running. Uh, you know, and honestly, uh, when I... In terms of you know when I've set up new places to live, for me like the number one thing is a couch in the living room. There's something magical about reading on a couch on a sunny afternoon. Uh, I, I think they're called lounges in Australia. Reading on a lounge in a in a, in a, in a on a Sunday afternoon that mm. can't be replaced by easy chairs or beds. So uh, um, as much as I love running, I there, I just love reading a good book on a on a uh, lying on my back, uh, maybe with a, a snack next to me. That's 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 happiness. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Yeah, I hate to be to be boring, but but you know, in terms of staying mentally and physically healthy, it's 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 running for sure. Uh, you know, physically because that's you know that's my main form of exercise. Although I do do other things like like rock climbing, uh, but but mentally it, it is too because I. You know, I work at at, at home. I, I work pre- pretty long hours because it's it's always tempting when you're working at home to to put in you know check the emails one more time, and you know running is one time in my life and in my day where I can absolutely guarantee that I'm offline, that I'm not doing any you know I'm not tempted to you know the the worst thing is you know I'm making dinner with my kids and I just I feel that phone in my pocket and think well I'll just check and see if any emails have come in and I know I shouldn't but I do. And so running is a real enforced mental break from uh, from everything else that's going on in my life. So it's it's I, I value it for that as much as for the physical part of it. Do you have any guilty pleasures? <laughs> no one's going to listen to this, right? I, I can I can speak honestly. <laughs> no, no, just just you and me. Um, guilty pleasures. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I mean, there's a whole spectrum of guilty pleasures. I, but one of the things I love to do is reread the children's books that I read that I loved as a kid. And I still, I happen to be living in now, my wife and I live in the house that I grew up in. And so there's been, uh, the books that I read as a kid are literally in the basement bedroom. Um, and so, uh, you know, whenever I get home from a trip, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, read from cover to cover one of my, one of my childhood favorites. Um, but if that's not guilty enough, um, I, I have a pretty big sweet tooth too. I, I, uh, 
Nutella is a is it doesn't last long in this house. <laughs> so, what's one of the childhood books you're rereading at the moment? This, uh, do we think sort of Hardy Boys, uh, Famous Five kind of thing? That that kind of thing. There's a there's a Canadian author named Gordon Corman who. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I it's hard to introduce him in a sentence or two, but he wrote his first book hmm. when he was in grade seven. So when he was about 13 years old, um, Gosh. and it, it, and it was, it's, it's brilliant. It's still brilliant. And then he, he's gone on to continue writing kids books. He's still active today, but he was, uh, absolutely my role model. And, you know, the books of his that I have read, you know, 50 times, uh, e- easily, uh, because they're just so funny and they capture what it's like to be, uh, you know, a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old so, so accurately. So, but I mean, last night I was, I got home quite late, so I slept in the basement to avoid waking up my, uh, my wife. And uh, so before we going to bed, I read, reread Calvin and Hobbes cartoons. I have some, some books of uh, cartoons <laughs> and, you know, Calvin and Hobbes is a, a very f- full of wisdom and uh, it's, it's as fresh today as it was, uh, you know, 30 years ago when I got the book. Absolutely. And finally, Alex, which um, person or, or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Hmm, that's interesting. You know, for that, I would have to say my my parents um, have really, uh, well, first of all, you know, they set a standard that I, that I, you know, consistently fail to live up to, but, uh, but they've, they've at least, they've, they've, they've provided me with, with um, a model of how to live that I think has has really stuck with me and and that I hope to live up to. My dad was actually a he taught ethics at the University of Toronto. He was a a, a professor of ethics, and my mom spent mm. her her career working for for uh, non governmental organizations, uh, focusing on on ethical investment uh, or responsible and socially responsible investment. Starting in the early 1980s when it really wasn't a thing. When you know if you suggested to a company if you tried to make a shareholder proposal. Uh, that maybe you know this company should divest from South Africa, uh, you know they they would all but have security just drag you from the room, uh, and so I'm I'm really proud of the work that she did and that both she and my dad did in the 80s and 90s stuff that I didn't really necessarily understand very well as a kid, but you know as I grow up it, it's really uh, you know come home to me to to realize that having that since this was a dinner dinner table conversation when i was a kid these are the things we were discussing that has really shaped my sense of of the importance of fairness and the importance of of you know considering other people's viewpoints well alex hutchinson uh runner scientist and writer thanks so so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the good life podcast today well thanks so much andrew and and congratulations on boston and uh, and good luck on the next one thanks so much Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.